Good morning. Um, thank you very much for, for coming. And we have a, a, an exciting uh, panel. I'm not going to go through their um, fabulous bios. You have them in your, um, in your booklet. Uh, but every single one of them uh, and combined have uh, decades of experience in the closed end fund universe and uh, are actually coming from different um, perspectives, uh, bring different perspectives to closed end funds. So um, we're very excited. Um, we're going to start with um, Jeff Margolin, who's going to give us uh, an overview, kind of a macro. Then we're going to go into um, their favorite asset classes, their outlook for the asset classes, and they're going to weave in um, a discount discussion and uh, distribution sustainability. And we're going to finish the panel um, with some corporate actions. Doug is going to tell us about uh, just generally what's going on, and Reni is going to give us some very specific examples. Uh, and hopefully with all of that, we're still going to have time for some Q&A. Um, so, Jeff, would you like to? All right. Thanks, uh, Mariana. Thanks, uh, Nicholas. So the topic is where's their value in the closed-end fund marketplace? And from my standpoint, th there's a lot of ways to think about value in closed-end funds. Some investors, when they think about value in closed-end funds, they, they simply like to focus on a fund's valuation, the, the premium and or discount to its net asset value. Some investors, when they, when they think about value in closed-end funds, like to simply focus on a fund's distribution rate, and, and they'll tend to focus on the funds with, with the higher uh, distribution. From my standpoint, before I get that granular, uh, when I think about value, I go back to the macro view. Because for me, at the end of the, the day, a closed-end fund is just a structure, a way to gain exposure to, to assets, to asset classes. And the evidence is very clear that over time, the share price of a closed-end fund will over time correlate with the underlying NAV, with the underlying assets that the fund is invested in. Uh, so from my standpoint, I start with the macro view, and, and right now, you know, our macro view at First Trust Portfolios, we're, we're bullish on the U.S. economy, expecting 3% GDP growth this year. We're looking for 22% earnings growth in the S&P 500 this year, 11% uh, next year. We think U.S. equities remain undervalued. As it relates to interest rates, we see the Fed raising rates three more times. And so from that standpoint, using that as a backdrop, the asset classes that I think are best positioned to perform well, given that macro view right now, where I see value in the underlying asset classes, would be U.S. equities. And I wanna, I'm still concerned about duration risk. I think it's important to... Uh, Think about duration within the fixed income portion of a portfolio. So that leads me uh, to be attracted to uh, the senior loan space and floating rate funds and shorter duration and limited duration type vehicles, which have held up best in this environment and I think will continue to hold up best in, in this environment. So those underlying asset classes remain attractive from my standpoint. And then there's still some value left when we look at the, the close-end funds. When I get more granular and look at discounts, particularly in the senior loan space, there's still some attractive discounts. As it relates to equity funds, we got to pick our spots a lot more carefully. This isn't two years ago when discounts were 10 plus percent, but there still are plenty of uh, well-run uh, U.S. equity-oriented closed-end funds trading at attractive discounts to their net asset value that I think in this macro environment, given our macro view at least, um, the NAVs are going to uh, perform well, and therefore I think the share, uh, share prices will, will perform well. So. U.S. equity closed-end funds and shorter duration floating rate type funds, I think, are the most attractive asset classes. 
and also there's uh, uh, still some value left from a valuation standpoint in those two categories of funds. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Doug, would you like to tell us about the asset classes that you favor currently? Well, I guess I'd say that um, uh, the way that the way that we're positioned, and it's been this way for a while, has been uh, overweight equity uh, and underweight fixed income, and so uh, we share some of uh, you know Jeff's uh, top-down perspective that uh, you know in the U.S. economy uh, job growth is pretty good, uh, earnings growth is going to be very good this year, and uh, while the equity market's been been choppy. We've been uh, impressed this year with, notwithstanding all the volatility, that uh, discounts on equity equity closed end funds have remained uh, below long term historic averages. So the long term average discount for the equity funds is a little bit north of five percent, uh, and they've spent most of this year below four percent discounts, and we think that that reflects investors. Uh, constructive sentiment around equity just uh, performing better uh, than fixed income in a rising rate environment. Most closed-end funds have leverage in the capital structure. Uh, that means that if you, uh, you know, whether you're an equity fund or you're a, a fixed income fund, there's a little decrement to your total earnings power to the extent that the Fed continues on this uh, short rate trajectory of tightening. Uh, and we think that the fixed income funds feel that are going to feel that more, that headwind more. So, you know, broadly speaking, we've been under, underweight fixed income. I think where we probably differ a little bit uh, from Jeff, it, and, and it's actually cost us uh, in performance year to date in uh, 2018, is that we've been a little bit shy about owning the loan funds. We definitely uh, see the purpose and the role and the place for loan funds in a broadly diversified portfolio because the earnings power of those funds will rise as short rates rise. Uh, we're just a little bit, and, and we actually think that the discounts on those funds, uh, you know, look pretty attractive relative to history. Our concern is probably a little bit more when we focus on the loan asset class that uh, you know, most loans in the loan market are selling at or above par, and so we're just a little bit concerned about full valuations in the underlying asset class, not, not per se kind of the closed-end fund valuations in that space. And then tactically, uh, we've also, uh, within the context of being underweight fixed income, we've been overweight uh, municipal closed-end funds. That position has also cost us uh, year to date, but, but uh, all the work that we've done suggests to us that when you can buy the national muni funds at 8, 9, 10% discounts, even some of the larger single state funds, California, New York, at double digit uh, discounts, uh, the forward returns uh, have been pretty impressive historically, and the hit rate's been pretty high historically. Um, uh, and we, we, we do recognize that, you know, all the data that goes into that analysis is in the context of a 35-year bull market in bonds. So there's, uh, and, 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 you know, not every single period 
do they perform and deliver sort of 9, 10, 11% total returns, but that's how we've been, that's how our positioning is set up. So we kind of think that the, in the case of the uh, muni funds, uh, investors uh, don't like the leverage that's in the muni funds where the borrowing cost has been going up ever since the Fed started tightening in December of 15. So the earnings power and the dividend cuts have been a regular feature if you've owned the muni funds. And we also think that investors don't like that duration. And so as the 10-year treasury's backed up and kind of broken maybe a 35-year trend line recently with the move uh, you know, above like 298 or whatever and 309 in the last couple days, uh, people are shy of the duration. We think that that's reflected today in those discounts, but you know, time will tell whether or not that muni positioning is going to pay off for us. It's cost us so far this year. So, and then the, the only other thing I'd say is, uh, uh, you know, outside the U.S., we've liked uh, emerging markets. We've got, you know, a, you know, a couple uh, U.S. Uh, we've got a U.S. Uh, emerging market fund. Uh, and then we've got a, a couple non-U.S. Uh, London-traded emerging market funds, and we just think that that's, that's an area that kind of got washed out in terms of investor sentiment with uh, concerns about China slowdown, and we, we kind of like the forward outlook there just on a relative value basis, and there are pretty big discounts in that space. Okay. Thank you, Doug, and that was a perfect segue to uh, what Rennie's going to tell us about. Um, yeah, in terms of value, I mean, the way I, the way I like to look at it and the way we like to look at it as a firm is where are you being compensated for taking risk? And um, if I look at, uh, and the, you know, this is a very general statement, obviously, but if I look at developed markets, whether it's equity or fixed income, um, you know, to the point that was made earlier, we, we're just coming off the top of a 35-year bull market in bonds. Um, equity markets uh, at or near all-time highs in the developed world. Um, so I don't think we can look at either of those two areas and say, you know, that, that um, they're cheap. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the outlook over the next few years, where are you going to see real earnings growth? Where are you going to see real GDP growth uh, of significance? And again, you look at the developed world, uh, I mean, you're arguing whether the US is going to grow at two or three, you're arguing whether Europe's going to grow at one or two, you're arguing whether Japan's going to grow at all, um, and yet you're looking at four, five, six percent uh, GDP growth uh, in emerging markets. Um, now, as we all know, GDP growth doesn't necessarily correlate with uh, uh, stock market growth, um, but at the end of the day, um, the way we see uh, emerging market corporates is that uh, you know governance is improving by and large, uh, balance sheets are improving, and uh, credit quality is improving. Uh, so the quality of investments uh, available in emerging markets, whether you're talking equities or fixed income, uh, we, we think is very much uh, on an upward trend. Uh, and you know if we just focus on fixed income for a minute. Obviously, we've had a bit of a shakeout in emerging market debt over the last month or two. Um, spreads have widened again. Yields on emerging market debt are now north of 6%, 6.5%. And I look at that and I say, you know what? You've been compensated for taking risk. 
uh, in that particular asset class. Um, you look at frontier bonds. Um, now, again, I know that, that uh, in the US there aren't that many holders of frontier bonds, uh, but uh, frontier, uh, our frontier bond fund uh, is yielding 8.2, uh, 8.3%, and the credit quality in that uh, is, uh, is double B. And uh, the, the correlation with other asset classes is particularly low, um, precisely because uh, there aren't uh, uh, an awful lot of developed market investors in the frontier bond market. It's a very uncorrelated trade. So um, for me, it's, it's a case of asking, where do you get compensated for taking risk? Uh, and given the economic outlook in emerging markets, uh, given that fiscal, uh, 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 corporate and sovereign balance sheets are an awful lot stronger than they've probably ever been, and clearly there are exceptions to that, uh, but in general terms, um, you know, corporate and sovereign balance sheets are very strong. Uh, that's an area you're being compensated for taking risk. Uh, and so, um, you know, we remain very upbeat on the outlook for emerging markets, be it equity or fixed income. Penny, can you give us some examples of countries that are considered or, or uh, that Aberdeen Standard considers frontier market just to... Yeah, uh, <coughs> I mean, frontier market, you're, you're, you're talking... Um, uh, a number of African countries uh, like Nigeria, Ghana, Zambia, um, and um, uh, you, you, you're uh, talking some of the smaller Latin American uh, economies that haven't uh, uh, made it into the emerging market world yet. Um, so, um, you know, these aren't uh, investment propositions that, uh, in general terms, the market's particularly familiar with. Um, but that's what we find interesting and exciting. They're underexplored opportunities, uh, and when those opportunities are underexplored, that's where you can make money. Thank you. Yes, Jeff, do you want to do something? Can I um, talk about uh, loan funds for a bit and why I still think they're attractive at this time? So, uh, you know, Doug mentioned the value of the typical uh, bank loan right now, senior loan, is right around par. And it is right around uh, par. But from my perspective, if you go back to 2004 to 2006, when the Fed raised rates uh, 17 times from 1 to over 5%, um, the leverage loan index, that, that index of loans, it stayed right around par. It stayed between 99 and 101 that entire three-year cycle, which is what you want in a rising rate environment for fixed income position. You want to hold your value, stay around par as rates are moving up. So from my standpoint, uh, if we've got another three hikes left this year, another two to three next year, if the typical senior loan can just stay right around par, we can get a rising income stream as LIBOR continues to move up, and we can start to see those discounts narrow a bit. From my standpoint, that becomes a, a very attractive total return proposition, even if the loan prices stay right around par and don't move the next you know, 12, 18 months. Uh, I also think not only will that stand out on an absolute basis, but I think it will stand out even more on a relative basis in an environment which other fixed income asset classes will see their prices go down. And I think one factor which has, uh, as well as they've done this year, the senior loan funds, that is one factor that uh, has held them back, and part of the reason I think there's more room to run, is we haven't seen the distribution increases that we normally see as LIBOR moves up. But from my standpoint, right now, we're on the cusp of seeing senior loan 
closed-end funds being able to increase their distributions. That is, the reset on these loans is going to more than make up for the increase in borrowing costs and some of the refinancing we've seen over the past couple years. So I think that's going to be another catalyst for the senior loan funds is, uh, is the potential and likelihood of rising distributions uh, the remainder of this year and, and with all likelihood uh, next year. Thank you, Jeff. And would you mind, uh, you or, or Doug, telling us a little bit about the, uh, the LIBOR floors and how we're kind of behind that now? Yeah, I, real quick, um, after the credit uh, crisis of 08, 09, or financial crisis, a, a lot of lenders didn't want to, uh, with LIBOR so low, didn't want to loan money to below investment grade companies uh, with a, a, a very small small spread. You know, LIBOR was 15, 25 basis points. So they instituted these LIBOR floors of roughly 1%. Let's call it 75 basis points to 1.25%, which means loan uh, holders were getting paid uh, 1% plus LIBOR for many years at a time when LIBOR, three-month LIBOR, was well below 1%. So we benefited from that. Uh, but, but, we, but on the same uh, flip side of that is we had to wait, we have to wait until LIBOR got through 1% for the resets to kick in, and now that process has uh, started. That's true. And I have a more cynical view of that, oh. uh, cha that chapter of uh, uh, new issue activity in the loan market, uh, which is that uh, in the period after the crisis, uh, a combination of uh, companies uh, and underwriters in seeking to enlarge the possible pool of buyers uh, of loans uh, to highly leveraged companies uh, uh, came up with this idea of LIBOR floors to induce the high yield uh, pool of buyers into the loan market. So by creating a uh, uh, the LIBOR floor at like one, and then plus a spread of whatever the number was, the yield was sufficiently high enough to induce high yield bond investors to participate in the loan market. So I think it was a combination, you know, so I guess, you know, they're, they're the lenders, they needed to be induced with a structure which was more appealing that provided them more current income, and in return for that, more current income that they got, uh, they effectively gave away the call option on a rise in the income stream on the loan for a certain period of time. So, so we're now through that, and the loans are more in a position to be sensitive to changes in short-term short-term rates. Right. And, and all of that confused some some investors because as LIBOR started rising. Uh, investors were wondering, why is my dividend not rising uh, on these loan funds? And in fact, in some cases, it was coming down. It was being reduced. Why? Because of the, the spreads were, were tightened. So it took a little while to get there, but now it's kind of maybe clean as it used to be before, and, and they should float. The float senior loans are now a floating rate asset class again. Mm -hmm. For many years, they weren't, and now they're back to being a floating rate asset class. And just real quick on, on the loan the credit conditions, it's a below investment grade asset class. The environment for defaults right now within senior loans is very benign. The default rate is 2%. Historically, it's about 3.2% going back you know, 20 years. So that's another reason I, I'm favorable towards the senior loan asset class because I think anytime you invest in a below investment grade asset class, the most important factor should be, will I get 
far back when this loan is due to mature, or this bond is due to mature, and with a backdrop of 3% you know, GDP growth and rising uh, corporate earnings, the backdrop from a credit standpoint for this asset class still remains quite favorable with the default rate last month of only uh, roughly 2%. Thank you. Um, why don't we move into kind of the, the third topic on um, corporate actions. Doug, can you give us a, a summary of what has been happening uh, this past year and in the Well, the I, I, I'd just say the last, real, I guess I would characterize it the last five years. Uh, uh, there has not been a lot in the way of uh, new capital raised in the IPO market for closed-end funds. There have been fits and starts, but the volumes have been you know, well below uh, any of the pre-crisis levels and, and well below the last sort of mini bull market in uh, equi equity new, issu new issuance of closed-end funds that kind of came to a uh, screeching halt with a taper tantrum in, in 2013. Um, so uh, most of what we've seen in the closed-end fund market is fund managers rationalizing their fund lineups uh, By rationalizing, you meaning merging and, and similar so, and funds. So, so, so the biggest place you've seen that is in the muni space, where lots of national funds have combined or been, you know, combined and repurposed and retitled, or given broader investment mandates to invest a certain part, portion of the portfolio in below investment grade uh, muni funds, um, and uh, uh, and in other fund categories, just mergers that uh, make sense from the standpoint of uh, lowering total expenses and putting the funds in a position to uh, deliver shareholders greater secondary market liquidity with more average daily trading volume and the potential for, you know, greater earnings power with a lower uh, expense base. Um, so, uh, you know, to us, uh, what this change in corporate actions has meant is that in terms of capital raising, there's really been a limited, no, there's been a limited uh, number of opportunities. Uh, and so where you've seen the, probably the most activity in the last 12 months or so is a number, number of fund managers that have had the uh, combination of track record, historical track record, and uh, relatively attractive fund valuation price to net asset value doing rights offerings and raising some capital uh, in that in that manner and uh, you know our I, our feeling generally on the rights offerings is um, if we own the stock we don't necessarily uh, uh, like the rights offering because it tends to put pressure in the secondary market on the position that we own uh, on the other hand, if we own a little bit of the stock and that little bit of the stock that we own gives us a subscription, uh, oversubscription privilege uh, that we can exercise to get some value out of the rights offering, uh, to a certain extent, you know, we might uh, choose to participate in those rights offerings. So that's, there's been, there have been some interesting opportunities in, in, in the rights offering front that we've taken advantage of. and. It's sort of a case-by-case -case evaluation of whether we like it or we don't like it. I mean, ultimately, <clears throat> the decision is about do we like the asset class and do we like the manager and do we think the manager is going to be a good steward of shareholder capital moving forward. It's about what ha what's going to happen in the 12, 15, 18, 24 months after the rights offering 
uh, notwithstanding the fact that there's often a short-term trading opportunity created by the rights themselves. Thank you, Doug. Another benefit that we see of, of mergers is with a bigger fund, creating a bigger fund usually means more liquidity, uh, and that can bring in different investors that may not have been able to access the, the liquidity, the low liquidity of a smaller fund, but now that it's a bigger fund, more liquid, now um, they may be able to put more um, more assets into that. So I, I think it also expands the number of, of investors that can look at that fund. Um, and Rennie, you can tell us about some very specific um, corporate actions that Aberdeen has been Yeah, um, and just doing. just before I, 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 start, on, I start on that, um, I mean, Doug, Doug was talking about the IPO market, and uh, as we all know, the closed-end fund IPO market has been effectively dead, or in intensive care anyway, uh, since the uh, the taper tantrum in the summer of 2013. Uh, and I, I remember speaking at this conference a couple of years ago, and uh, I made the point then that I, I felt that the, uh, the whole fee structure around IPOs was completely wrong. Uh, and you know everyone was holding out for this four and a half percent spread on a closed-end fund IPO, and as I pointed out uh, two years ago, uh, when the IPO market was dead, you know four and a half percent of nothing. Last time I did the maths was zero. Uh, so um, the good news is that um, I, I think the market is a lot more realistic uh, about uh, uh, about IPO costs. And um, you know we're now you know the number that people are talking about is is around two, um, so I'm I'm hopeful over time uh, that we will see uh, a revival in the IPO market. Um, the other issue uh, that we all know uh, we face is that uh, investors will say, yeah, I love the idea, but I'll I'll buy it at a three percent discount in the aftermarket. Uh, <clears throat> which of course, if everyone says that, there is no aftermarket because there is no IPO. Um, so, you know, we need to uh, continue to think hard about how, uh, how we manage discounts uh, around IPOs uh, and then hopefully we can breathe a little bit more life uh, back, into, um, uh, back into that part of the marketplace. Because uh, at the end of the day, the closed-end fund vehicle uh, is, is a great vehicle as an investment vehicle. It's great for investing in illiquid assets. Uh, it's great for generating income. And if you think about it, um, the, <clears throat> given the, uh, the, the hunt for yield that is still going on in this marketplace, even as rates start to rise, the closed-end fund market should have been the ideal place for people to go and look. Uh, yet funds were still trading at discounts. There were no IPOs happening. And I think it's very important uh, that uh, you know, we collectively continue to work hard on educating the market about the, the beauty of this vehicle. Uh, and that we do get more participants. And that kind of leads into what Marianne was saying. Uh, <clears throat> and specifically at Aberdeen, we had a number of uh, emerging market country funds um, uh, that were quite small. Uh, not, uh, the, the funds themselves were not particularly liquid. Uh, expense ratios were higher than ideally they could have been. Uh, and uh, over the last couple of years, we've been working on the process of merging those funds into one much bigger vehicle. Um, so that, uh, that, that task was completed quite recently. Uh, and uh, so we now have 
uh, a, a very sizable uh, emerging markets uh, uh, equity fund uh, that is basically an amalgamation of uh, several much smaller funds. And, you know, Marianne made the point that the benefits there are definitively liquidity. Um, so, uh, you know, investors can move in and move out of the fund uh, with a lot more ease than they could, say, a 50 or $60 million Asian closed-end fund. Uh, and obviously, the, the, the expense ratio for the, uh, the merged fund uh, is significantly lower than it was for the, um, the smaller funds in their own right. So I think that makes an awful lot of sense. It's, but the most important thing is it's, uh, it's best for shareholders and, and, and future investors um, and um, you know, creating liquidity and a lower, uh, a lower cost of running the product is, is got to be good for all. Just a quick comment on uh, the IPO market. So, you know, last year, I was, the panel I was on was about uh, target term closed-end funds. And while the sort of the new issue market for, you know, the traditional perpetual closed-end fund might be on life support, I think you look back over the past few years, some of the best opportunities, whether it's the IPO market or secondary market, are these target term closed-end funds which have come out. And uh, so while the perpetual close-end fund IPO market may be on life support, a lot of very compelling uh, target term close-end close funds in the secondary market, which are not only trading at discounts to their net asset value, but uh, also, more importantly, in many cases, a discount to the uh, proposed uh, target price that they're, uh, the manager is trying to uh, give back to shareholders at the liquidation date. So. That's another opportunity that I think exists for uh, closed-end fund, uh, close fund investors right now. And in general, those have traded at very, very tight discounts and sometimes at premiums. Um, yeah, they, they, they tend to be less volatile. Uh, they tend to hug the NAV more closely. And some people new to the closed-end fund landscape think that this is a, a new structure, a, a new vehicle. but. You know, these target term close-end funds have been coming out since the 1990s. So the, the track record in terms of funds being able to uh, provide the price that they say they would uh, is, is, is quite good for many fund companies. Right. Although what is different from a few decades ago is that the term is much, much shorter now. Right. Uh, it used to be 20 years, 15 years. Right. Now it's... And you Three, five, seven years. Right, and you have to really do your homework because there's, we have a closed-end fund, FDEU, which is a fund that has a term date in ballparking seven years. Uh, shareholders will, will have an opportunity to vote to open-end the fund if they would like, um, but that's a term trust. It's not due to uh, return a specific price. There are also target term funds, like you're probably referring to, the three- and five-year funds, uh, which are actually being managed to return a specific price. So you really have to do your homework. There is a big difference between a target term fund and just a term fund. And that's a good point because some, I was going to use the word promise, but I, sh I won't. <laughs> uh, the objective is to return the IPO price. In other cases, it's to return the IPO net asset value. And in a few other cases, it's just whatever NAV there is at that term. So pay attention to those, those, uh, those differences. Doug, was there something that you wanted to make? Uh, no, I would still characterize the IPM market as life support. <laughs> well, with that, um, do we have any questions uh, in the audience? We have a few. Okay, back there.
this, this question, this is for Doug, but anybody can answer it. Uh, you talked about municipal closed, uh, closed end funds, and I was wondering uh, what the prospect is for further distribution cuts and how you handicap that probability. Oh, I'd say 100%. Uh, the reason I'd that say 100 like good, then. I mean, I, 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 I think the prospect is that they're gonna, they're, there will be cuts. Uh, uh, in general, these cuts have been sort of uh, trims of uh, sort of in the range of, of, of 3 to 5%. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, when the funds have been adjusting their uh, distributions, those adjustments have, generally speaking, brought the coverage ratios to 100% or, say, 101% or maybe 101.5%. And so to the extent uh, that, you know, we'd agree that there's a prospect of, say, three more Fed uh, tightenings uh, in this, you know, over the course of the next 12 months, that is going to, uh, all other things being equal, uh, put that earnings coverage ratio uh, uh, below 100 uh, and force uh, certain funds to make adjustments uh, in those distribution rates. I'll second that. Now, I may add something. Um, <laughs> in my opinion, <laughs> that is a very short-term question. If you are, are thinking of holding a closed-end fund for the next few months only, okay, fine, you can worry about that. In my opinion, number one, closed-end funds should be for the long-term not for the next few months. In that case, so what if they cut the dividend just a little bit? It's not unexpected. They're leveraged. The cost of borrowing is going up. So the earnings go down, fine. I mean, that's part of the game. If, if you're buying a close-end fund, you should know that and you should expect that, in fact. What's happening is a lot of the discounts are widening because of that, that concern. In my opinion, the the more the savvier closed-end fund investors who've gone through this roller coaster, and especially if you went through it in 1994, and hopefully you're going to be for the long term, fine, take advantage of these bigger discounts. Let other people worry about it. Uh, they may not know as much about it, but if you've gone through these roller coasters and you're for the long run, take advantage of this opportunity and take advantage of these wider discounts. And so what if the, discount, if the dividend cut, cuts down a little bit? At the end of the day, the total return is most likely going to be much better because they, they systematically take advantage of this borrowing at a much lower rate and investing at a much higher rate. Yes, in the very short term, the returns may not be as great, but you're there for the, for the ride and you know that. As long as you know that, take advantage of that opportunity. That's my opinion. Yes, over here. Thank you. Uh, could you uh, tell us how many of the closed-end funds have share repurchase programs, dividend, or rather, treasury share repurchase programs when the NAV falls below, say, 5 or 10%? I don't know the exact percent, but mm -hmm. I, I can say our family of 16 closed-end funds, right now we have I'm pretty sure it's five uh, share buyback programs currently in, in place, five out of our 16 funds, just as, as an example. Yes, yes. We, we, we likewise, we, um, we have a number of these uh, schemes in place. Um, I'm frankly a little bit cynical about it. This is just a personal <laughs> view. Um, I understand why the schemes are in place and that's fine. But at the end of the day, uh, having been in the market 
clearly a long time, uh, things are going to trade where they're going to trade. And you can go and buy back shares and you can buy back 5% of the equity or 10% of the equity and you may close the discount for a week uh, or a couple of weeks or whatever. But ultimately, what will happen is um, the shares will end up probably trading right back where they started, point one. Point two, all you do is um, push up your cost ratios because there's less equity. Um, and uh, point three, um, you, um, you, you know, you minimize liquidity because you're taking stock out of the market. Um, and, I, and I stress, this isn't an Aberdeen Standard Investments view, this is just my own personal view, uh, but I don't really think these things add any value at all, personally. I would agree with that. It, they sound good, but the, the, the effects, the consequences are not necessarily meaningful. In fact, they may be due to liquidity and expenses, it may not be the right thing to do. They sound good. Yeah, the, uh, the th only thing I'd add there is, um, you know, so I'd, I generally agree with uh, the fact that the, the buybacks don't have a lasting impact on how the fund trades in the secondary market. You know, how it trades in the secondary market is much more about, like, what is investor sentiment. So when investors love bond funds, they trade at close to NAV. Uh, they, there was even a period in early 19, in early 2004, when the average equity fund was selling at a 4% premium. So, you know, that followed a period where the previous 12 months, the S&P 500 was up 32%. So you could maybe say that investors love stocks so much in early 2004 that they were willing to pay a premium for leveraged equity closed end funds. But... What I would say uh, is, uh, you know, if a fund uh, uh, company announces a tender offer at like, uh, you know, it's typically traded at a 10% discount to NAV and they announce a tender offer that they're going to buy 5 or 10% of the stock at a, uh, you know, 98% of net asset value, I'd say hit the bid, you know, because you'll be able to buy it back uh, most likely at a 10% discount in, you know, relatively short after, short order after the tender. I think David Schachter's had David. his hand up. Um, the notion that mergers and consolidation are voluntary by issuers, I think is a little bit false. I think it's activists that are forcing the hand of the funds. City of London, in particular with Aberdeen, held unwieldy amounts, and then they forced. Why not fight rather than capitulate? Um, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I don't think it was a, uh, a case of capitulation at all. Um, we completely and utterly saw the logic of um, you know merging um, uh, merging funds together um, for all the reasons that I went through before. Um, and then you know the other thing, David, that is uh, critically important is that shareholders are shareholders. So if uh, a shareholder owns 20, 30, 40% of uh, your closed-end fund, you have to um, very much listen to what those shareholders want and, 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 and respect their views. But having said all that, um, the real driving force from our point of view uh, was to create um, a more liquid vehicle with a lower expense ratio uh, that um, uh, would have a much broader and wider appeal in the marketplace uh, than a bunch of smaller country funds um, that uh, uh, 
you know, frankly, were no longer fit for purpose. Um, you know, when a lot of these funds were set up, um, investors invested via country. You know, I, I want to be in Russia, or I want to be in Turkey, I, I want to be in Poland, or, or whatever, it, whatever it was. Korea. Korea was difficult to get in. Yeah, so. I want to be in Korea. Um, that's not the way people invest anymore. They want exposure to emerging markets or developed markets, or they want income or growth or whatever it is. Um, so I, I, I think the country closed-end fund, um, and I know there are one or two presenting here later on today, so uh, I apologize, um, but I, I think it's become you know, slightly a bit of antiquity. Uh, and for us, uh, having a much broader emerging markets fund made an awful lot more sense. Now, there's a whole different issue that we could talk about vis-a-vis -vis activists and their short-term views versus uh, the, the, the views of longer-term investors and whether activists um, uh, are, um, you, you know, actually benefiting the closed-end fund market or not. I think there are a lot of arguments to say they don't necessarily. Um, and to Marianne's point, if you're going to be in a closed-end fund, you've got to be in there for the longer term. And I have an awful lot of sympathy with that uh, but that is not what drove our merger process. And we would love to take many more questions, but Nicholas gave me instructions to uh, watch the clock. So thank you very much. Um, this was great. We could have stayed here for much longer, but thank you. Thank you.